In this God and Sexuality series, we seek to explore the intent of God's design in this wonderful gift of life and sexuality, knowing that the ways of God in all things lead to flourishing, life, joy, and healing. In a time of Tinder, hookup culture, porn, gender fluidity, same-sex attraction, HBO, and the politicization of sex and all the gender debates, there are numerous voices clamoring to be heard on these topics. But at a deeper and more personal level, we know that our sexuality has incredible power to form us, power to bring health and flourishing, or pain and destruction. We are not looking to pick a fight with anyone, but rather show that any difference we may have most probably doesn't start with our beliefs on sexuality, but rather our beliefs on God and His intent and design for this world and its people. We want to create a place for all people to bring their whole lives, including their sexuality, to Jesus and let Him do the restoring work He needs to do. Now we will listen to the next installment of the God and Sexuality series. Good morning, everybody. Um, I love that worship. I was singing at the top of my voice and little Layla Kruger, my daughter, came running up and jumped up into my arms and halfway through a song, I opened my eyes and she was blocking her ears. I'm like, wow, worship must be really loud. I'm like, oh, hang on. And I put it down and she unblocked her ears. It was all my singing. I cannot sing, it's been confirmed, but I can worship, okay? And that's what matters. So uh, my name's Ian, I'm, and it's great to be here with you, and it's Lana on this lovely journey of grace and restoration in this community, and we're so grateful for the elders um, allowing us to partake in, in sharing God's Word in this series. And it's um, been so good for my soul and my heart. And we are week two slash three. We had a prequel on worldviews, a, um, a little uh, to the series. And we're talking about sexuality and God's plan for our sexuality, God's design in our sexuality. And that's the series that we find ourselves in. And this morning, what we're going to be speaking about is how our sexuality has a profound power in forming us and shaping us as people. I don't know, uh, I've got a question for us. Uh, when was the first time or what was the moment that you woke up to the reality of being a sexual being? What was the moment that you woke up and experienced your sexuality for the first time? That's my question to you. Now you've got the answer, turn to the person next. No. <laughs> <laughs> Now just remember, no matter how awkward this talk gets, it's far more awkward for me. Because at some point today, I'm gonna to be doing this talk in front of my parents, okay? So I will share my story. My first one was Sports Illustrated as a young teenager. I'd seen them before, and I remember seeing on the front cover a woman in a bikini and seeing the female form for the first time. I had seen the female form, but this was the first time I saw the female form. And I kind of realized that there's more to um, the female form than my childish ways have thought that I must avoid it and avoid all the germs that the females um, part of our population has. And it was the first time that I found something wake up in me and I was like, wow, there's something here and it's powerful and it feels nice and, and I'm not sure what I'm meant to do with this, but man, it feels good. And then the first time that I saw a naked body was, or naked female form, was on the internet. I was a young teenager again, and, and I don't know if you remember, when I was a young teenager, we had dial-up. The internet had basically just started. Can you comprehend that? The internet had basically just started. You had that gray box, which would literally crackle and dial up, and you had those lights on it. You would hope that those lights would all turn green, because if it didn't, you'd have to wait another 15 minutes and try again to dial up to the internet. And there was pretty much nothing on the internet. There was no Twitter, there was no YouTube, there was nothing on the internet. There were basically badly made HTML websites and chat page rooms, that's it. And I remember with my mate, we were in a chat room and all these chat rooms were curated. Remember, this is before phones. I didn't have a cell phone. Okay, in the evening, I think people are gonna be like, what? They've always existed. But I didn't have a phone and my first experience was in this chat room. And we were chatting and we were just figuring out the internet. It was actually a chat room about how to build HTML websites. And suddenly someone posted a pornographic image. It took about three and a half minutes for that thing to load, line by line by line by line. And I remember the anticipation, the excitement. I was like, what is this image? And then I saw it. I was like, oh, this, is she going to have clothes on? And then she didn't. And it was quite an explicit pornographic image. 
And I remember the curator of the, the site took it down quite, of the chat room took it down quite quickly. And then there was this, a whole bunch of responses. Oh, how can we put that on here? There are children in this room. What were you thinking? And others going, it's just a naked body. What's the big deal? They're going to learn about it eventually. I remember myself being at the same time really excited and feeling like, oh, there's something here and exciting and I want to find out more. And a decade-long journey of grappling with pornography ensued from that point in my life. But also a, a fear. What is this and what are we meant to do with it? Now, I don't know what you, how you answer that question and what it looked like for you. Maybe it was a really healthy moment and you feel like you expressed your sexuality for the first time or came alive in a really healthy environment with people shaping and guiding and leading you and what this is meant to be and how it's meant to be used before you got to it. Or maybe you had a really embarrassing moment where, where you learned about sexuality and your parents learned about locking the door. Maybe that's how it happened for you. I don't know how it happened, and I think for some of us, it, it may have happened in tragic ways, where it happened far too soon, far too young, by adults who should have known better, and there's tragedy in your story and trauma. And I hope that as we engage with this topic this morning, our sexuality and its power to form us, that as we go to the person of Jesus, no matter what our story is in this area, no matter where it started, it would find its place rooted in the person of Jesus and that we would receive the grace, the healing, the forgiveness that we need in this area and that the fullness of who Jesus is would be brought to our sexuality and that we would experience the fullness of his life in this area of our lives. And as we do that, as we look to Jesus, we're going to look at who are you becoming? We're going to look at our sexuality and how it forms us. And we're going to bring our sexual desires, look at what it means to bring our sexual desires to us. Who's reading for us? I think it was Tr Linda. Linda, would you come up and read for us? Please? Good morning, everyone. We're reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 to 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and, and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Amen. So let's look at that first point that I mentioned. Who are you becoming? Paul in this text is engaging with a church, um, with, Thess with the Thessalonians and their church, and he's, he's, he's dealing with a Greco-Roman time in history. And what's so interesting is Paul pretty much doesn't write to a church in the New Testament without dealing with sexuality and how they're expressing their sexuality. Because in this time in history, it was quite common to, to worship the gods by going to a temple and sleeping with temple prostitutes. And there was a very different view to how we are meant to use our sexuality and what our sexuality is for in that time to the Christian view. And Paul has a very clear starting point as he engages with the Thessalonians on, his, on, on our sexuality and how it is we're meant to engage with our sexuality. Verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, Paul's starting point is God. He's answered the big questions, the three big questions. Is there a God? Yes. Who is he? Jesus, who has claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, which we unpacked in, in week one. 
that Jesus comes and steps into human history with this huge claim, I'm the creator, I'm the designer, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And, and Paul's starting point for this conversation on sexuality and how we're meant to engage in sexual activity is rooted in the person of Jesus and his claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in many ways, when Paul says, you're, not, you're not disregarding me, you're disregarding God, he's saying, hey, as Christ follows, as those who are in Christ, there is a reality that we have said, yes, Jesus is who he says he is. And therefore, it would make sense that we align all of our life, including our sexuality, to who he is and what he says about it. In week one, I spoke about a puzzle, how life can feel like someone's throwing puzzle pieces at us. And the, our experience in life are like these, these subjective puzzle pieces that we hold and we try to put them into a coherent whole to make sense of this world and how this world is meant to be. And Jesus in claiming, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, I am the, I'm the puzzle box lid. I'm the picture on the puzzle box that you're meant to bring your subjective puzzle pieces to. And you're meant to start with me and understanding everything in life, including your sexuality. And Paul, in addressing the Thessalonians starts at the same place. We start with the person of Jesus. We start with God. And he acknowledges that not everybody starts in the same place. Verse five, like the Gentiles, those who do not know God. He acknowledges that not everyone is working out their sexuality with the same picture. That there are different pictures that people have put up and say, this is how I'm choosing to make sense of my sexuality. But Paul says, for the Christ follower, for those who are in Christ, he's predominantly speaking, verse, verse one. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. I'm speaking to brothers and sisters who are in Jesus. That's his starting point. And while he acknowledges that people have different starting points, he's saying for the Christ follower, our starting point is Jesus. And if you're here and, and you're, you wouldn't say that your starting point is the person of Jesus, I would say then we're going to have a lot of disagreement around our sexuality potentially. Because, not because of, and to start the conversation here is probably quite unhelpful. We would say the conversation for those who don't start with the same puzzle box is a conversation around the puzzle box. And if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, if you're here wanting to know what we think about sexuality, I would say your starting point is actually the question, what do I think about the person of Jesus? And our hope is not that we would fight or prove you wrong. Our hope is that you would encounter and meet the person of Jesus and the life that he offers in all areas of your life, including your sexuality. And so like Paul, as a church, as leaders, we are predominantly urging and asking and speaking to those who would consider themselves Christ followers. We're predominantly speaking to our community about what God's plan, purpose, and design for our sexuality is. And the assumption is that if you are in Christ, that matters to you. And those who claim to be Christ followers, we need to understand that Jesus cares about who we are becoming. Verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That word sanctification is a word found in the Bible. Often it is a theological term that simply means or speaks of the journey of becoming who we are in Jesus. As Christ followers, we believe that we are those rescued and redeemed by Jesus through his finished work on the cross. And in a moment of surrender and repentance and clinging to Jesus, we are our very status and identity changes from enemies of God, those unworthy of God, to sons and daughters of God made worthy for, of the presence of the creator of the universe. Instant. But that sanctification is a journey of becoming who we already are in Jesus. That because of indwelling sin, there is a journey of aligning to becoming more and more like sons and daughters of God. It's, the gospel is a story of homecoming and becoming like Christ. And that's the will of God, is that we would increasingly become more like Christ. Verse one, that you do so more and more. And what Paul says to these Thessalonians is he says, you guys are getting this thing of sexuality. You're getting it, you're doing okay. It's getting better, but there's more and more for you to do. Hey, we don't reach perfection this side of eternity in any area of our life on this journey of becoming more like Jesus and that there's always more to grow and to do and to grow in and, and to surrender and to hand to Jesus. And as Christ follows, this should be incredibly humbling. And as a community, I wanna call us to humility 
Because so, it is so easy for us as a community, as, I, as we as leaders speak to this community and to predominantly Christ followers, for us to think that this conversation is all about them and they out there. And what Jesus would say to us this morning is, no, it's not about them and they, it's about me and what's going on in here. And that this conversation is about our hearts and what it is that Jesus wants for us. And the more and more that we can grow in in our sexuality, no one in this room has a perfect sexuality. Married heterosexual couples, your sexuality is not perfect. You are not walking in perfection. There is room for all of us to grow in this area. So the question we should be asking as we continue in this journey of looking at God and our sexuality is what does God have for me on this journey? What does he want to form in me? Who am I becoming by the way I express my sexuality? And here's the reality is that our sexuality forms us, it shapes us. In fact, I'm gonna argue that our sexuality has a profound power in shaping who we become as people and as Christ followers. Look at how Paul talks about sexuality. Verse six, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you, because the Lord is an avenger. I just watched Thor, Love and Thunder. He's not that kind of an avenger. Okay, that will land this evening. Um, Okay, that will land this evening. (laughs) He's not an avenger. And Paul says, "I I solemnly warn you. The scriptures, the Bible speaks incredibly strongly and with quite a lot of force when it comes to human sexuality. Why? Why this language of God being an avenger of our sexuality or use incorrect use of it and this solemn warning from Paul? Look how Matthew 5, Jesus himself speaks about our sexuality. You have heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Strong language where Jesus is saying, there is no cost too great in not compromising your sexuality. And in my struggles with pornography and lust, I've learned that there are a lot of steps before gouging our eyes and cutting off hands, like turning off my phone, internet blockers, not being in a space with the internet. But that's the point, there's no cost too great. The biblical urgency and strength of language around our sexuality, I think is made, the reason is made clear in 1 Corinthians 6. And there's one line in here that I think makes it so clear, but I wanna read it in context. I'm gonna read quite a bit of it. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's a lot going on there, speaking about the power of our sexuality and sex. But the key line is verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's incredible, Paul would put sexual sin in a category of its own and say every other sin, yes, sin is sin before God and holiness before holiness is perfection before God, which is why we need Jesus. But every other sin sits in this category and sexual sin sits here because it is a sin that you commit against your own body. 
And when you start to read and unpack that phrase, there's this sense in which sin, sexual sin, deviating from God's design and plan for our sexuality is incredibly destructive to us as people at the emotional, spiritual, and physical level. Proverbs 32, speaking about sexual sin, says that the person who commits sexual sin lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. That there is a profound power in our sexuality to either form us towards Christ-likeness or deform us in our humanity. Philip Yancey says this, Sex used outside of God's vision has enough combative force to incinerate conscience, vows, family commitments, religious devotion, and almost anything else in its path. The scriptures are strong because they both recognize the beauty of our sexuality and the power of our sexuality to bring good delight and joy into our lives but also its power to destroy and ruin us and deform us. Someone doesn't become a pervert overnight. A pervert is made when they give themselves to perverse things day in and day out until they are perverse and do perverse things. Our sexuality is profoundly powerful in forming us into a kind of person. And I could tell many stories. Think of Ted Bundy. Murdered and raped many women in his life and said it started with pornography. And then it escalated so that wasn't good enough so I had to do it in person and I was really bad at it. And I just got better and better until one day I was possessed by the need to act that way. Our sexuality is a profound power either for good and formation or for bad and deformation. Now, how do we look at this power? How, what are we meant, meant to do with the power of our sexuality? What, how do we approach it? Now, um, before we get to how Jesus would tell us to deal with our sexuality, I wanna look at two approaches that I think fall short. And these two approaches are, that have been put forward in history and in our cultures, fear your sexual desire or follow your sexual desire. Let's look at that first one, fear your sexual desire. So in church history, the church has not always got this right and has lost God's vision for sexuality and has at times taught that sexuality is something to be feared. And there is a person, St. Jerome, he was a great theologian and scholar, biblical scholar. He gave us the Latin translation of the Bible. He gave a whole decade of his life to do that. He's done a lot of good. He threw himself at Hebrews, at the study of Hebrews so that he could do that translation, but the reason that he did it was to avoid his sexual desires. He, he describes himself as someone who had a vivid imagination and was plagued by sexual imagery and desires. And so he came up with this framework almost of strict moral regulation on my sexual desires plus my willpower will equal holiness. To the point at which where he said, if a husband and a wife enjoyed sex too much, they were just above fornicators and were basically sinning. And that the only good thing around sex and marriage was that it produced virgins who were the most virtuous in our society. That sounds like a fear of desire, of sexual desire. And this permeated the church into to places where priests needed to be celibate. In Philip Yancey's book, Rumors of Another World, Designer Sex, he goes on to, to, to unpack the history and the trajectory of this, where basically sex was only allowed, was not allowed on holy days. Sex was not allowed on the buildup to holy days. Sex was not allowed on certain days of the week, till eventually there were only 44 days in the year that married couples were legitimately allowed to have sex. It's a disappointing time in history. I'm sorry. One pope assigned Daniel the Trouserer to paint clothes on the nudes in the Sistine Chapel. There's this idea of fear around our sexuality. You need to fear it. And the way to deal with our sexuality is moral standards, strict moral standards plus willpower will equal holiness. And it doesn't. We just need to look at the history of the church and moments in the church to realize, and in, to be honest, in my life and my battles, 
when I was an early teen and my struggles there, I believed that moral standards plus willpower would equal holiness, but it doesn't, it equals failure. It equals failure. And the problem with this view, as Philip Yancey says, is that people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. I remember my mind being blown. I can't remember where I heard this for the first time. When someone said, God invented the orgasm. I was like, what? Can you even say those two words in the same sentence? Because I had this fear of sexuality. And then I was like, what a wondrous thought. God in his creation of Adam and Eve and him inviting them into the marriage covenant and union gives them the orgasm to be enjoyed. It's part of his design and intent for humanity. Unfortunately, in a sex-saturated culture, when strict moral standards plus willpower equaling failure and the church being full of terrible failures in this area, the culture goes, well, that doesn't work. How should we approach our sexuality? And it leads into follow your sexual desires is where I think our culture is now. Desire plus consent equals freedom in our sexuality. Desire plus consent equals freedom. Cultures go, we need to move away from this fear of sexuality into a positive approach to our sexuality. And there's this movement called sex positivity Sexologist Carol Queen says this about this movement. Sex positive, it's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions on a different medium. That instead of having two or three or even half a dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. You see, this framework simply says that sex is a appetite, is simply an appetite, it's simply a desire, and that we should customize our profiles. Whatever our custom profiles are, we should satisfy those desire as long as there is consent. Follow your desire like any other appetite. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're hungry, eat. If you are aroused, have sex. And if no one's available, look at pornography and masturbate. It's just a physical desire. What's the big deal? That's where our culture is at the moment. I remember having a pastoral with someone and I'm trying to convince him that sex is so much more than just sex. And he eventually, in a really frustrated way, just said, Ian, they're just body parts. Get over yourself. And he didn't say body parts. I'm taming the language. The reality is we're 50, 60 years into this experiment and, and these ideas are, are about at least 200 years old in terms of our culture. People like Rousseau and Nietzsche and Freud, the romantic poets, they dreamed of the playgr sexual playground of the last 50, 60 years and couldn't live in it because of their cultural time. But they were speaking and prophesying that it was coming as we disconnected God from our sexuality but we've lived their dream in the last 50 to 60 years. And we get to look back on it and go, is this follow your desire plus consent equaling freedom? And Mary Everstedt says this in Adam and Eve after the pull, contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women. And second, its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in our society, even as it has given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory. She says, we see two effects. And one of them is that the weak are finding themselves weaker and the predators are finding themselves more empowered. Here's the problem. If you disconnect God from sexuality, you disconnect accountability from our sexuality. When you then say sexuality is just an appetite to be fulfilled when and how you want to fulfill it, people who do not choose or view consent as necessary, God, I will satisfy my appetite when I want, how I want, with whomever I want. And sexuality becomes weaponized and used to oppress the weak and the vulnerable. And it is so sad that we live in a country that at the beginning of, of Women's Month, we've had those two horrific stories come out this week of multiple women being raped and murdered.
And she says that's one of the effects of the sexual revolution when we treat our sexuality as simply a desire to be satisfied when we want and how we want. Which is why the culture is right and so strong on it has to be desire plus consent. But Mary Eversight points to the reality that even desire plus consent is not leading to where we thought it would lead. That this idea of hookup culture, having sex whenever you want just for the sake of having sex is not going well. There's a New York Times article, What's Lust Got to Do With It? And this woman just unpacks the reality of hookup culture. She shares her experiences and she shares the experiences of others, some normal people and some famous people, and how weird it is getting to just go and sleep with people you don't know. And she says this, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard. We portray it as fun and we pretend it is fun, but people crave intimacy which is why Britain has just appointed a loneliness minister. You see, when, and then we've got sex education videos describing or defining sex as something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. You see, there's no mention of marriage, there's no mention of family, there's no mention of faithfulness, there's no mention of fun, there's no mention of friendship, and there's no mention of intimacy. And what that article says is that what we actually long for is intimate relationship, not just pleasure. And because we have turned sex into a commodity for pleasure, we've lost intimacy. Again, I had an uh, honest conversation with a friend of mine who's not a Christ follower. And he said to me, Ian, I can pretty much sleep with any girl I take home or drop off. It's how it works at the moment. And he said, I pretty much drop off girls without the intent of sleeping with them and they ask me to come up and sleep with them. I don't know why. He's a good looking guy. I'm like, I know why. Okay. But he's like, I don't know why. And I'm tired. And his words, it's a bit gross, but I can't stop. And I felt empathy in that moment for him. Because he's caught up in a culture that keeps telling him it's just sex, but everything in him is saying it's not. It's hard. It's not pleasant. This isn't enjoyable. And I'm lonely. He was lonely. That's what started the conversation. Pastor says this, when you get rid of the creator, you remove the concept of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of the need for accountability. There's nothing to be accountable to. When you get rid of the need to answer for your choices or give an account for your life, you remove the fear of any sort of consequence. When you remove the fear of consequence, God is out of the equation. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so with no God and no wisdom, we are left with total sexual confusion. And that's where we are now in our culture today. And I would put, put it this way, sex as a desire with consent is actually leading to disillusionment, loneliness, and pain. I worked in the film industry for almost a decade before becoming a full-time pastor. I worked on many movies, and pretty much every movie, bar one, had an, sexual, had an explicit sex scene or nudity in it. And what's amazing about these scenes is that they are done with such reverence the day before one of these scenes, on the course sheet, it would say sensitive scene coming up. And everybody knew what that meant. We would prepare for the sensitive scene. When we filmed them, pretty much we were stripped down to the bare minimum of people who needed to be in the room at that moment. I was so grateful because I often wasn't needed in the room in that moment. And then every, all the makeup artists would be armed with blankets to cover the nudity between shots. And I always found the irony so stark that here we are literally treating this moment with incredible reverence and sensitivity, knowing that this matters for the people who are engaging in it. Yet outside the room, on the monitors, everybody's gathered around watching what's going on in the room. And eventually the whole world's gonna watch what's happened in the room. And so the media industry is going, it doesn't matter, it's just sex, but in the making of it, it matters. And we show reverence but we don't tell that story because we're trying to tell the story that it's just sex, but we can't disconnect the meaning from it. And I wonder when you first found your sexual desire awaken, did you, were you told or did you think you had to fear it? 
Or did you were you told or did you think you just needed to follow it? And what have you done with it since then? Did you fear or follow or both? I think Jesus would call us to something different than fear or follow our desires. Paul's argument to the Thessalonians this whole time has been rooted in the reality that God has a plan and a design for our sexuality and that our sexuality is a tool of our formation. It shapes who we're becoming. Paul says, don't disregard this. If Jesus is who he says he is, then that's aligned to his ways. And that this is forming part of your sanctification and you becoming who you are in Christ. And so therefore, as Christ follows, it's not fear or follow. It's a simple bringing of our desire to God and saying, will you shape our desires? Will you form them? And then will you form us by those sexual desires? It's a simple surrender of our sexuality to Jesus and saying, form me and shape me. John Tyson, who's helped us in this series, helped me in this talk, says this. Jesus wants to be Lord over all our states, including our aroused state. We bring our sexuality to God. How do we do this? It starts with a desire to please God. Verse one, how you ought to walk and to please God. Christ follower, the assumption is that for those of us who have encountered the living creator of the universe, the one who stepped into human history was stripped naked and put on a shameful cross and experienced the shame of his nakedness before the father on a cross. That we who have experienced the grace and the goodness of that and the satisfaction of knowing the creator of the universe, that our assumption is that we would wanna please him. This is not a moralistic pleasing of God. This is a relational pleasing like you do anyone that you love and care for and have experienced their love and care in your life. You see, our sexuality, in fact, the Bible speaks, any desire that we have, this longing in our hearts for things and stuff, and especially in our sexuality, which is a longing for intimacy, is ultimately and fully completed in an intimacy and a relationship with our Creator, God. And that every longing, sexual longing we have and desire, every desire that we have for stuff is fully and ultimately only completed in intimacy with the Father. And that's where it starts. Knowing Jesus and being in relationship with Him and the satisfaction that we can have in Christ. Our deepest longings need to be connected to the creator of those deepest longings. And we as Christ followers should have no issue trusting that his plans and desires for our sexuality are good. And so two, we align our sexual desires to God's design and intent for them. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we said this in talk one and talk two, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time there, but that sex is connected to the goodness of God, that he has great pleasures and delight for us to enjoy with his, within his design and intent. He is not the spoil sport of sexuality. He is its designer. And that his design and his intent is that the expression of our sexuality, our sexual activity would take place in a place of deep vulnerability and intimacy, a place of giving and receiving, a place where a husband and wife are joined together in a deeply physical, emotional, and spiritual, spiritual act. Two, two independent people becoming one interdependent being before God a place of being known and loved, a place of true freedom. It reminds us that our deep promises and vows, it reminds us of our deep promises and vows and the way in which we have committed our lives to each other. And marriage is to reflect the deep love and commitment and promises of Christ to his church and his people. That's God's design and intent. And in that place, people stop becoming, stop, are not a commodity, but people to be loved. It's not a place of taking, it's a place of giving and receiving and finding and seeking intimacy. It's a place where we don't treat this as an act to be freely given, but we tie it up in long-term commitment and vows 
which make it safe for us to be known and loved. Three, we understand that the restraint of our sexual desires is, is, is um, tied to our transformation. That each one of you know how you ought to control his own body in holiness and honor. You see, sexuality and our restraint in our sexuality is what forms us and shapes us. Raoul Hyde's in his book on desire says when you follow your desires, when you don't follow your desires, when you restrain yourself from following your desires, you find yourself examining your desires and asking why do these desires exist and what are they for and what is the intent behind them? And we, I know as a parent of young kids that I ruin and deform my children's character when I say yes to every woman desire they want. In fact, if I said yes in one hour to everything that my children wanted, I don't think they would be alive. <laughs> the sugar rush would be intense. And we know this to be true, that our character is formed through restraint. But yet somehow when we reach adulthood, we think throwing off restraint is gonna form our character. But actually the throwing off restraint leads to deeply selfish behavior. Whereas Christ would want to, through restraint, form our character so that we become sacrificial, servant-hearted, other-focused people like he is. And then finally, we submit to the Spirit and lean on his power, strength, and presence in our lives. At the end of that text, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The difference between willpower and self-restraint is how you're trying to achieve it. Willpower is where you look within to find the power to say no to set a moral standard you've determined. Whereas what we're being called to here is sandwiched between intimate relationship with the creator of the universe and a knowledge of who he is and the deeply satisfying reality of being in a vibrant and alive relationship with him and his very presence and power by his spirit poured into our lives in such a way that we want to live to please him and serve and love others and grow into his likeness by the power and presence of his spirit in our hearts. That's not willpower. That's the power of the living God actively at work in this world. As a community, this really matters. How we deal with our sexuality will be one of our greatest witnesses to the world in the Roman Empire in history, it says this of Christ's followers, that they literally changed the Roman Empire because of three things. The way they died. They would die forgiving their executioners. The fact that they were promiscuous with their money, that they would just freely be generous with their money and serve the most vulnerable in society. And then thirdly, that they were stingy with their bodies and faithful in their vows. And that was the greatest witness to the Roman Empire in the early church. We've still got a lot to cover because I want to make this practical. I'm going to go for 15 minutes more. I'm going to be as quick as possible. But I think it would be a miss to just land in, in the call to that's how you do it and not apply how do we practically live this out as Christ followers in an overly sexualized culture. And so often we can make it about, is this right or is this wrong or what's the correct way? But I think a more helpful question to ask is, who am I becoming in the way that I use my sexuality? As John Tyson says, we need to rather ask the question, who am I becoming by the way I'm using and giving myself to my sexuality? And so I wanna ask that question of three, four things that I see are really prevalent. Pornography, masturbation, dating, and living together before marriage. Asking that question, what is this forming me into? So pornography is, is pretty clear that the Bible is, says anything that is lustful is destructive. And pornography very clearly falls into the category of lust. And I could put up a thousand texts that speak, not a thousand, but many texts that speak to lust and its problem and its destruction. I don't think many of us need to be convinced. But as a pastor, this is a problem. I think there are three people that I have pastored that I know of who have not looked at pornography in their life. And there are many men and women sitting in silence in this community addicted to pornography 
and you don't know how to get out. And if you, and some of you don't even think it's an issue. Some of you don't even think it's a problem to be looking at pornography. The stats are out, the evidence is out. It's not hard to find out how destructive and what this is forming you into. What does pornography form you into? Dr. Trish Lee, um, Porn Brain Rewired, she runs a great um, website and YouTube videos trying to help men and women get away from porn addiction because of the damage it does. She says it is not real in any way. Pornography and media depict sex as three, naught to three minutes to get going, 10 minutes of pleasure. She says physiologically, and the reality is, it's at least 10 minutes to go from laundry to sex and to be ready for it or whatever activity you were doing, and naught to three minutes of pleasure. It's inverted, it's not real, it's fake, the positions are not real, and as Christ follows, a lot of pornography has nothing to do with God's design and plan for it. It has a physical impact on our bodies. It rewires our brains. She says it is one of the most powerful drugs out there to destroy our natural reward centers. It pushes our dopamine through the roof. It does something in our brain that both stimulates it and dumbs it down so that our brain waves are operating in a space that is more likely to deep levels of depression than joy where you at the exact same time are looking for stimulation to get the dopamine levels high, but every motivation center in your brain is dumbed down. And the evidence is showing that so much depression in our generation, especially in men, they would claim is I look at pornography because I'm depressed, but it's actually another way. I'm looking at the pornography, therefore I'm depressed. The problem with pornography is that it escalates in violence to get the same kick study between two groups of men. One group of men, men were, answered a questionnaire about women and looked at two weeks worth of porn, looked at porn for two weeks. Another group answered the same questionnaire, looked at nothing. At the end, those who looked at porn had a much lower view of women and commodified them a lot more. It literally changes your mood. It causes you to withdraw. It causes you to not be able to function within community and with people. It it's about taking and not partaking. It changes you at every level, emotionally, relationally, and physically. So ask yourself the question, if you're engaging with pornography, who am I becoming? The beauty is that when you walk away from it, the brain can restore and, and be healed from the damage that we've done but we need to walk away. We have a Living in the Light course launching straight after this for men and women, which is a course to help, which is designed to help men and women move away from addictions to pornography. If you feel that you are stuck, the first step is to speak about it. In my journey with it, I only defeated it in two ways. One, when I didn't bring moral willpower to it, but realized that I actually love this thing and find a lot of comfort in it. And I need to admit that before people and before God. And then the redeeming work of Jesus started at that point. And it could only be defeated when I started praying the right prayer. Jesus, help me not to love this thing and to love you. Masturbation. We've got to move a bit quicker here. We might not get to all of it. Masturbation. There's nothing in the Bible about masturbation. I'm pretty sure they did it, but there's nothing mentioned in the Bible about masturbation. Again, remember, if you're feeling awkward, my parents are probably listening right now. Okay. There's nothing in the Bible, but St. Augustine, our North African brother, one of the most significant theologians in church history, said that the ultimate display of sin is love turned in on itself, people who turn in on themselves. And C.S. Lewis answers this question so powerfully. I just want to read his quote for the sake of time. In responding to a young man, it is from a man's perspective, but I think it is from both, both men and women deal with this. And this is his response in that category of love turning in on itself. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which, is lawful, which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another. And finally, in children and even grandchildren, turns it back, sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out 
and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions, which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adorned, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. And it is not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. The true exercise of imagination, in my view, is A, to help us understand other people, and B, to respond to, and some of us, to produce art. But it has also a bad use to provide for us in shadowy form a substitute for virtues and successes and distinctions, etc., without which ought to be sought outside in the real world, e.g. picturing all I'd do if I were rich instead of earning and saving. Masturbation involves this abuse of imagination in erotic matters, which I think is bad in itself, and thereby encourages a similar abuse of it in all spheres. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prisons we are born in. Masturbation is to be avoided, as all things are to be avoided which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. It's all captured there. Who are you becoming as you partake in this act? Dr. Trish Lee again says that masturbation has the same effect on our dopamine responses and damage, and she talks about dry porn addicts where our imaginations are so vivid that we're basically living and watching pornography within our minds, and it can have the same effect. Who are we becoming? Secret masturbation within marriage is incredibly damaging and destroying to God's intent and plan for it. Dating. This could be a talk on its own, and I'm going to fly through this. But again, who are you becoming? It used to be that... It was arranged marriages and courtship where the man was invited into the community of the woman to be assessed on three things. Worth, character, and ability to love a woman and a man worked out within community and in real life circumstances. That's how it used to be. That's the one side of the spectrum. In 1914 is the first time that the word dating came into existence and where it started to shift and change away from getting to know a person's character within community to it being formed around fun, entertainment, away from the family and in unrealistic circumstances and situations. And then that dating has escalated to being taken online and into hookup culture with dating apps like Take-A-Lot, which are basically Uber Eats for sex. <laughs> Tinder, Take-A-Lot, sorry Take-A-Lot. <laughs> it's like Take-A-Lot, they can deliver people to your door. There we go. And we're seeing a change in the way that we date and the way that we assess people and the opposite sex in dating and what we're looking for in dating. There's an article by a hedge fund manager where he shows how sales in perfume used to be really high because of the dating scene, and now they're really low, and makeup is really high. You can't smell what a person smells like on Tinder in a profile picture, but you can see what they look like. And there's this shift in culture. Vanity Fair, that hookup culture, says there have been Two major changes to the dating scene. Four million years ago, when marriage became contractual, and then now, with the invention of the internet, we're confused because the dating scene hasn't changed in four million years, pretty much. I think of my dial-up internet, now everybody has access to anything they want on their phones in their back pocket. This is described as this, this dating hookup culture scene is described as in this article by people as, I'm always on the prowl. This is a guy in this article. says, I'm always on the prowl. I can line up two or three, three or four dates at the same bar, walk into the bar and go, that's the prettiest, and move towards her and drop the others. I can set up two dates a week and sleep with, uh, two to three dates a week and sleep with most of them, racking up a hundred girls I've slept with in a year. 
He speaks of Tinderellas, those are girls you want to sleep with before 12 because you actually like them, versus girls you want to sleep with after 12 because of their bodies. You get Tinder Kings. These are people who, with the master of their text game, can get a girl to sleep with them. One woman says, men treat me not as a priority, but as an option. I'm looking for something in the next 10 minutes. How close are you? Another guy says, I hooked up with a girl. Um, I hooked up with four girls in three nights and hardly spent a cent on them. Another girl says, I had sex with a man and afterwards he ignored me. I got up and got ready and he was back on Tinder looking for another girl. That's where hookup culture and dating in the hookup, are, are dating apps bad? No, I know people who found incredible wives and husbands in the way that they chose to date, but who are we becoming? And there's this, this tension between dating within community and dating online in ways that disconnects it from reality. And here's the thing, who am I becoming in dating? You see, the world would say, ask first, are they hot? Do I want to sleep with them? Can I have an exciting and wondrous time with them? Explore my sexuality with them. Is there potential for, and then, is there potential for friendship and a vision to get together? And then finally, maybe we should consider marriage. Whereas the ways of Jesus would say, I meet someone and I offer sacrificial love and care to anyone I meet. Hey, is there friendship here and a connection? Do we resonate in areas of our life together? Hey, can we build a life of excitement orientated around God's call on our lives and is that aligned? And now, yes, I'm attracted to you and therefore I commit to you and we explore our sexuality together. Who am I becoming in the dating scene is the question we need to ask. And for those of us who, who are in that space, John Tyson talks about, do not commit fraud with your body, where you promise with your body what you're not promising with your heart and your life. And then finally, living together. Jonathan Grant, in his book, Divine Sex, it's a really awkward title to read a book with on the front cover. He says this, that, Cohabitating before marriage is a subprime relationship, like sub, um, subprime bombs, they're designed to fail. One in five end in marriage, and there's an increased likelihood of divorce. Serial monogamous relationships in terms of um, living together with multiple people and having sex with them before marriage is a good indication of sexual unfaithfulness within marriage. And sexual activity in general is a good indication that there will be infidelity within marriage. These are just stats, these are just facts. And it makes complete sense if you think about who am I being formed into? You see, in your pre-marriage years, are you abstaining and restraining yourself in a way that you are preparing yourself to be faithful? Or are you training yourself to give in to every woman desire and opportunity that comes your way and hope that somehow making a vow, you're going to offset all the training you've done in your previous years? Tim Keller says this, but when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it's primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotions, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, and for that the marriage vow is not just helpful, but it is even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, that person really means I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say I don't need a piece of paper to love you is basically to say my love for you has not reached the marriage level yet. So in all these things, the question is not, is it right or wrong? We have to have that question. There should be a de desire to align to the ways of Jesus on these things. But the question is, who's this forming me into? Is this forming me into Christ-likeness or this deforming me away from what it even means to be human? Is the right question to ask. I know the devastation of sexual sin. This is not theory to me. I know the devastation in my life that I've caused through my sexual sin and I know the devastation in my life of the sexual sin of other people. 
And I know how painful this can be. And I asked you, what was your experience? And I asked you what you've done. And we've all racked up painful experiences and embarrassing moments and shameful moments and things that we wish we hadn't done or experienced or seen in our lives. There is no one in this room, I don't think, who's got something that they're holding on to that is painful in this area. But in the same way that I know the pain of sexual sin, I know the power of Jesus in bringing healing in bringing life, in bringing flourishing. I know the power of the gospel and the cross to take my shame and my guilt to the person of Jesus and lay it down there and say, I never need to feel shame or guilt in this area ever again. And to put down that burden once and for all and never let it have a hold over me again. That is who Jesus is and that is what he offers. So many of us, when it comes to our sexuality, feel burdened and tired from the pain, the shame, and the guilt that we offer. And this is the invitation of Jesus as I call up the band. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We are called to bring our sexuality to the person of Jesus and he will meet us where we're at and he will form it and he will shape it and he will satisfy us in ways that we can't find anywhere else. There is no safer place to, to deal with our sexuality and its brokenness than the family of God, a graceful community. Rich, come lead us.